Another hot day, alone with eight billion. What was I doing? Hey everyone, welcome to Solacene. Aaron, that was a lovely haiku to start us off. Thank you, I didn't get any pause. I'm sure everyone at home is applauding. It's kind of a negative haiku, mm. but I think, feel like today's episode is going to be kind of negative. It, it might. So like you said, welcome to Solacene. If this is your second or third episode, welcome back. Mm-hmm. This is the first in a long series or semester of episodes which we're doing all about degrowth. So if you don't know, the way this podcast works is we start each episode with some questions we have come up with. Mm -hmm. We spend the course of the episode discussing them. And hopefully by the end of the episode, we have some new questions which we can discuss next week. And it never ends like that. Yeah, it goes on and on. And hopefully you folks can follow along at home. If you like the questions, you can do some research on your own and... Overall, just expand your thinking. We want to encourage people to think outside the box a little bit and honestly encourage ourselves to do some thinking about this topic. So we chose degrowth as our first topic. Do you have a definition for what degrowth is? Yeah, I don't want to talk about it too much at the start of the episode because I think we will spend many, many hours discussing it. Mm -hmm. But degrowth has a lot of definitions. They can vary in specificity from very broad perspectives or very specific economic ideas, Mm. the definition I have found that I like the most is from a website called Mm degrowth.info, which I heartily recommend. And they include some tenets of degrowth. And the two that I wanted to mention are striving for a self-determined life in dignity for all. Mm -hmm. This includes deceleration, time welfare, and conviviality. Yes. And also an economy and a society that sustains the natural basis of life. Mm-hmm. So all good things. Yeah. It's a lot about anti-consumerism, environmental sustainability, and conviviality, which do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, conviviality, this is a loose definition, reclaiming one's power and creativity to create a life that is nice for themselves and for their community. It's basically just well-being, but producing well-being for yourself and your community. Hopefully that makes sense. All good stuff. Yeah. So now we're going to get into all bad stuff. The first question of Solacene, of the podcast, yeah. <laughs> is just, what is wrong? Mm. Alicia, what's wrong? Because I feel like we have this podcast and we are mm. perhaps naively, perhaps arrogantly presenting ourselves as just bastions of, uh, of good ideas, saviors, if you will, mm-hmm. and present... <laughs> Presenting solutions. We have solutions up the wazoo, but what's the problem? What's, what's wrong? Activism overall is about defining what the problems are. Because you have true. to know what you're fighting against. You have, to, you have to keep your friends close and your enemies closer okay. when it comes to theory. So what I think is wrong is a loss of autonomy. Individual autonomy. Yes. Okay, or collective autonomy. Both, honestly. My gripe is basically we live overall, like we live in North America. Okay. Yeah, we we should keep this as contextualized as possible. Yeah. So I'm not talking about everyone, like everyone's not the same. But for us, it's like we live in this world where it's capitalism and it's democracy. Like those are the two systems which essentially govern everything and have kind of caused the problems. Okay. And I really believe democracy is a super powerful and important part of degrowth and a part of creating a better world. However, 
after World War II, everything went downhill. There was such a huge shift in like how things functioned because we'd just gone through two world wars, the Great Depression, and governments were like, what are we supposed to do in order to save people's lives, kind of get things back to normal, if not even better than normal? And so they said, capitalism, that's what we are. Let's like really make it all about capitalism. But because they were trying to make everything so good, it was kind of this artificial compatibility that was instated between capitalism and democracy. So it was basically the government was investing a ton of money into these products and projects to create suburbs, new industries, and so on. But then we had this false idea that capitalism and democracy are super compatible and like create really good well-being. And in reality, the way capitalism is going isn't super compatible with true democracy. Is that making any sense? I think so. Can I just <laughs> let me let me try and <laughs> let me try and make sense of it. Your first gripe yes. is that post World War II, when we were building the new world or rebuilding the world, yes. we went into a bad direction. Mm-hmm. And part of the issue is that governance and industry started to interact in ways they shouldn't. Yes. I'm thinking about corporate lobbying, things like that. Exactly. Okay, okay. So I wanted to give that sort of context. We've lost autonomy basically since the dawn of capitalism in the 16th and 17th century. But it was accelerated then after World War II. Because before then, there was still a lot of cottage economies or like kind of a bit more mercantilism where it's like, yeah, we are, there's employees, there's businesses and so on. But people still had a lot of hands-on skills. You would still, maybe you did work in a factory where you just put a button on a shirt all day. Like you still had that kind of loss of well-rounded craftsmanship, but people still had a lot of hands-on experiences sewing and mending their own clothes or what have you. But after World War II, in our heads, well-being and economic growth are the same. So we started commodifying every little thing that you possibly could think of. So we've commodified water, we've commodified all of our food, like no one makes their own food from scratch anymore, like grows it. Uh We've commodified things that are so basic and intrinsic to life that we basically, if the economy crashed or if industry stopped, like we would be kind of helpless. It's like in Wally. Yes. People are just incompetent. I mean, I can't tie my shoes. Okay. I can, but I can't do simple things. Let me put it like that. Well, yeah. If I lived 200 years ago, I'd be able to do a lot more mm-hmm. to keep myself alive. Yes. That's what I mean by loss of autonomy. And I feel like that's one of the biggest things that is wrong. That's why I chose it as, an, as a starting point for this conversation. Loss of competence. Yes. Do you want to talk about it in yourself so you don't sound so judgmental? Oh, Yeah. There's this quote, famously, the theologian G.K. Chesterton was asked on like a radio or something. The interviewer said, what's wrong with the world? And then he said, I am. Oh, I love that. And I was like, yeah, that's how I feel. (laughs) Like I'm what's wrong with the world. And it's just like the biblical, take the plank out of your eye before you like point out the splinter in someone else's eye or something like that. Like you have to I've never had that, but let he who's without sin cast the first stone. Yeah, basically. Yeah. So 
always keeping that in context of like, I'm judging myself, honestly, first and foremost. Yeah, I'm going to try and think of a good example of like a loss of autonomy. Honestly, pretty basic. I can't eat gluten. And when I learned that I was like pretty young, gluten-free bread wasn't a thing. Like you couldn't just buy it in stores. And I was like, I don't know how to make bread, let alone now that I have to make my own bread, trying to figure out how to do it. So it's like I really literally just had to wait until a product came out that was tasty enough for me to eat because I couldn't figure out how to make it myself. Yeah, in a lot of ways, we're at the whim of the industrial corporate class, Mm -hmm. certainly. Another example, you were making a painting recently. Yeah. And so, of course, you had to go to the art store to buy Mm -hmm. paints because... You wouldn't have the first clue how to make paints. Yeah, good point. And, oh no, there's no blue. Yeah. It was blue, right? Yeah, well, there's a global shortage of blue right now. So so there was just no sky, or the sky was green, essentially. Yeah. (laughs) So things like that. Like, we don't even know, how would you source pigments or dyes? Like, there's a lot of loss of knowledge, and it's a shame because, honestly, generational knowledge is key to creating competent societies, but the last three generations or so have been just like diminishing pretty rapidly. Another thing that goes hand in hand with loss of autonomy is like loss of the commons. Before capitalism, all the land was owned by a monarchy or like the government. I'm not like idealizing feudalism, but basically you still, even if you were a servant, like a peasant, basically, what you'd do is you would have a strip of land assigned to you. You'd have to pay a ton of taxes on it and give up most of what you harvested, but that land was yours. If you didn't want to work for anybody, you still could just live and feed yourself and just pay your taxes in carrots. Does that make any sense? Like there was a lot more, if you didn't want to work within the system, you could just do your own thing on the commons, basically. Yes. Okay. I understand that. Like there was, um, there was less of a necessity to live in a certain system. Yes. You could, if you wanted to do, you could do the SpongeBob and just ditch the crusty crab and go live with the jellyfish. Is that what you're saying? Yes, that's what I'm saying. Now there isn't any public land like that. That is certainly a shame. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't want to idealize feudalism either. I'm not sure if there was more social um, verticality than, than there is today. I'm not sure if it was easier to climb class. I doubt it was. It certainly was not. But I also don't think it's easier to climb class today than it was say 50 years ago mm-hmm. i think that's very hard right now to get yeah. out of lower class or very low class or lower middle class mm-hmm. i think there's definitely a lot of outdated advice given to young people for instance yeah my first gripe i kind of themed mine okay. so my three gripes are that we're disconnected from ourselves we're disconnected from others and we're disconnected from the environment it's kind okay. of like a like a triangle yes up So what is wrong in a word I just wrote down? Alienation. Yeah. So I'm going to start with ourselves. I kind of structured my ideas in a a word web, a brainstorming. Okay. You know how in in middle school and high school you would draw like clouds and then draw words coming off that? I'm sure people listening are like, I don't care. But the (laughs) the reason I did it is because in my mind, so many of these things are intertwined. Oh, certainly, And I didn't want to really have to assert any cause and effect this is this way because this is this way Mm -hmm. because everything's so there are so many feedback loops involved here and so many domino effects that it's it's really hard to put things on let's say a timeline it's much Mm -hmm. easier to just put it all on a on a web yeah 
So the three kind of tangential points I wanted to mention about us being disconnected from ourselves. The first one is mass media and mind viruses, mm -hmm. which I'm going to define as when news comes out or a hashtag goes viral or mm -hmm. a, a video goes viral or a meme. It can be as serious or as humorous or as light as, as you can think. Mm -hmm. And everyone is just like, knows about it yeah. and talks about it. Again, this is not judgmental because I do it all the time. I'm thinking about with Netflix shows. I feel mm -hmm. like, what's it, like Squid, squid, squid game? Games? Everyone, that's just... It was like thing. overnight. Overnight. And it's the case for maybe a week to 10 days. Mm -hmm. And then it's done. Mm -hmm. Like Tiger King was last year's. Yeah. Squid Games this year's. I feel like we're all on strings. Netflix and um, other corporations are like the puppet masters like that. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a good thing that we experience stories communally. I think yeah. that's good. So maybe the Netflix example is not great. I suppose it depends on the content. Mm -hmm. But when these things turn political, when they turn social, even environmental, I think that can be... Um, rather dangerous mm -hmm. and kind of a new form of a, of a mob mentality almost. And the reason I say this disconnects us from ourselves is because it's as if we don't consult our own opinions sometimes on things, mm -hmm. I feel, especially when you're plugged in figuratively, when you're scrolling a page for a while or you're really on like some new track of research or, oh, I really like this, um, this new political system, maybe degrowth. Mm -hmm. And I feel like all the ideas are so nicely laid out for us and there are communities already waiting, tweets already retweeted that you can, you know, just add your one button press to or reshare. Mm -hmm. That we become not a person anymore. Is this, does it make any sense? We just become a number. Yes. I'll try and summarize what you said based on like my personal experience. I remember in like high school, you just go through it's like you're on a, a conveyor flume ride conveyor belt and you're just kind of going through it and I remember coming out of high school and being like what music do I like what shows do I like what is my sense of humor like I literally did not know yeah who am I because all through high school I just was like oh I'm into Marvel because it was like cool to be into Marvel that's what people are into yeah it was like I'm into whatever music was popular then like Taylor Swift it's just like I hadn't made my own decisions. And a lot of decisions I made were just like contrarian. I was like, I'm not going to be into Taylor Swift because she's trendy. And now that I'm like trying to consult my inner experiences <laughs> and voice, it's like, wait, I actually do really like Taylor Swift. I don't really care that anyone else. Yeah, and, and that's fine, of course. Yeah. I think this convey about feeling is why I don't want to ex excuse them at all. But this is a big reason that we see so much contrarianism, political contrarianism, conspiracy theories and just deliberate, I'm going to go against the grain mm -hmm. because there's a grain to go against. Yeah. And it feels better. And, you know, people misconstrue that as, oh, I'm being myself. When, yeah. as, as you just mentioned with the, um, I'm not going to like something just because it's popular. Mm -hmm. That's not any more being yourself than just following the crowd, of course. Yeah. Something else I wanted to mention, I even kind of made the mistake earlier. We always talk about CNN, Netflix, Disney, Fox, as in, oh, these are the, corporations i don't want to i don't want to watch those news channels you know mm -hmm. like young people don't watch tv because it's like oh that's all lies and that's just gonna it's trying to make me think a certain way mm -hmm. but when we get all our news from social media tiktok instagram youtube whatever it may be it seems more independent but when it's independent but 
let's say codified by millions of individuals all thinking the same thing, mm -hmm. it's it's just as much an echo chamber. It might not be ordained from a corporation. Yeah. So I suppose you can feel happy about that, but it's still not yours, kind of. And I'm not yeah. saying you, that you can't agree with YouTube channels, trends. Mm -hmm. I do all the time. But I feel like we should get better at assessing them through our own individual thoughts. Yeah, it takes a lot of internal reflection, looking at your childhood, looking at your aspirations for the future to try and determine what you like and the things you want to surround yourself with and attract and repel. Yeah. But it's a lot of work. Like it's, it's not just an overnight, oh, I'm going to be myself. It's so easy to, to do the other thing, right? Yeah. Like, um, I think that's why we see so many, as I use the word again, codified capital A aesthetics online. Because mm -hmm. it's like, I don't have to really think about who am I and what clothes will I wear. Yeah. yeah I like this. I'll be this. Yeah. I'm cottagecore. You are. That, that's oh, true. That was a joke, but yeah. Um, something <laughs> else I wanted to mention kind of like this is that the world's so big now and I kind of, uh, this is the second line of my haiku to start the episode, alone with 8 billion. I feel like, especially as young people, we're so plugged in to the plight of developing countries, the impacts of climate change, of people much less fortunate than us, at least that's what I see among young people. That might be an optimistic view of it. But I feel like everyone's very conscious of these things now. Mm -hmm. And it's never been that way in history. One, yeah. because there's never been this many people on the planet. With mm -hmm. each moment, like the population grows to a historical high. Yeah. And two, because again, mass media, we never knew about every disaster in every country. And I think it's, it's obviously a very noble thing that people care about an earthquake on the other side of the world mm -hmm. and want to help. But I also think that weight of thought is, is crazy on our shoulders. It certainly lends to the disconnection with yourself, basically due to mental illness and like mental health concerns that come from being so plugged in. Well, with stress, we're neurotic, I think. Yeah, I mean, we just know about everything. And we are all highly empathetic beings. Like humans just have empathy for the most part. And when you're hearing about all these different issues and simultaneously basically being told you have no power though, like you're not a corporation, you're not a politician, exactly. you're just a kid, you're just a minimum wage working single mom, like whatever you are, you basically feel simultaneously like you need to do something, but you can't do anything. Yeah. <laughs> that leads into my next point about being disconnected from ourselves, which is a general lack of self-esteem. And this is on a deep level, not a superficial, like, oh, you're shy to talk in crowds. I mean, yeah. our sense of our agency is so low. Mm -hmm. We think we can't do anything. Yeah. And some kind of reasons I have for this, something that I feel strongly about is lack of education that empowers. Mm -hmm. We are both recent graduates, so we're kind of just, just out of that CM yeah. system, just off that conveyor belt. And there isn't much of anything, either directly or indirectly, that makes you come home from class feeling... I can change the world. Yeah. I can do something. I have ideas. I can contribute to fields or art or politics or anything. Yeah. I feel like, to be honest, it goes the other way. You can't do anything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like that. Because even we have access to all the success stories of Greta Thunberg or whoever else is super successful in the field that you want to be. And you're like, well, their circumstances were much different than mine. They had a really high education. Oh, they just went viral. 
whatever happened and you feel very powerless because we're basically at the whim of algorithms when it comes to a lot of online advocacy and work. That's true. And we I, kind of feel that in real life, like we're at the whim of social algorithms. I don't even think just the exposure to success stories, as you phrase it, is what really could empower people. I think it's about providing them education that gives them a platform to address issues. Yes, so I 100% agree. For instance, we never learn about what capitalism is, essentially. like High mm -hmm. school graduates don't know that. We never study how to write or how to speak effectively. Mm -hmm. And we never really learn about the possible drawbacks or constraints of our own systems. Mm -hmm. You know, the cynic in me wants to say it's deliberate because governments don't want to produce critical thinkers mm -hmm. who are aware of the walls around them. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's what it is. I do think that's a good thing about social media. I do think uh, most, most kids these days are heavily critical of exploitative systems. Mm -hmm. I don't know how much of that is just parroting, which I was kind of just criticizing before, but yeah. you know, outside of the school system, there are today more methods of empowerment, I suppose. Another reason about low self-esteem, kind of a superficial one, but not really superficial, is health and vanity. I feel like most people are very unhealthy. Mm -hmm. We eat bad food and we don't exercise very much and we don't sleep and we do drugs. Mm -hmm. not, not like we, but a lot of people. Yeah. And yet, especially for young people, we're subjected to essentially a beauty contest mm -hmm. every time we look at our phones because TikTok and Instagram are really, really attractive platforms. Mm -hmm. I mean, you basically get paid for looking good. Like That's how you, that's how you win. Like a lot mm -hmm. of kids are growing up seeing you know, despite what adults or inclusivity campaigns might tell them, this is how you succeed in life. Mm -hmm. And I feel like a lot of teens put a lot of thought into their appearance. Okay. That I might have always been the case, but I just feel like it's, it's progressing. Yeah. And it's like we're not focusing on being just like good humans, being mentally stable, being physically healthy. It's just kind of like this unhealthy version of... Yeah, it's about looking good. Yeah. It's about... It's about the optics. Mm -hmm. Something else I wanted to mention is this general disregard for the significance of what we say and what we do. Mm -hmm. And I suppose this is just synonymous with saying that we have a low sense of our own agency. But what I mean is we don't consider our words. We treat our speeches profane, literally and figuratively. Mm -hmm. We don't consider even the way we walk mm -hmm. or our actions. We procrastinate a lot. Mm. And, um, and we waste a lot of time, which I don't like. And I think this, a lot of this comes down to the exposure with so many words and actions and videos and people that we see today. Mm -hmm. Because there's just so much of everything all the time, why would our speech and our movements matter? Why would each individual moment matter? It's kind of mm -hmm. like that. And the third point I wanted to mention about our disconnect from ourselves is attention span, perhaps mm -hmm. boredom. And I think another way of working at it is that we might be afraid to be alone with ourselves. So an example I have for this is that alone time, which is healthy, of course, especially for introverted people, yeah. I'm very introverted. But I, I started questioning this a couple of years ago when you're alone and you just want to be alone because you're tired of people. Mm -hmm. Quite often we are 
listening to music, watching movies, or similar content involving people online we don't know. Mm -hmm. And it's like every moment has to be filled with something. It's like there's this existential fear about nothing happening. Yeah. I know you feel this frustration with me sometimes because we're just chilling and, you'll, and I'll be like, what can we do? What can we do? What can we do? And you'll say, why can't we just do nothing? Mm -hmm. And I'll be like, what? Well, why do nothing? Why ever just, yeah. just exist? Yeah. I mean, one of my big gripes, like what is wrong? One of my answers would be our time really doesn't feel like our own. Like none of our time feels like our own. The average person works nine to five. So like half of their waking hours are working for the most, like on an average day. And then the other eight hours is like, okay, it's my time. It's my free time, those eight hours. But it's like, you also have to prepare your food for work. You have to sleep. You have to eat two meals during that time. And if your job is physically demanding, you often just literally have to take a couple hours to rest and like shut down in order to have any kind of social interactions after work or before work. How we do that is basically by escaping because we don't want to just be alone with our thoughts and be alone yeah. in our heads because it's not the best place to be for a lot of people. And also I feel like, I like that you mentioned the nine to five. We're kind of conditioned into hating that kind of time. I mean, mm -hmm. I've had very menial jobs in the past, nine to fives. And during those hours, you're so bored. Mm -hmm. You basically develop strategies to, or at least I did, you develop these these little strategies or games that you play, mm -hmm. which is all about escape. Yeah. And it's it's nothing about being in the moment because that's mm -hmm. too painful. <laughs> yeah, and it's almost as if after those eight hours, you're like, I know an easy way to escape TikTok or like I know an easy way to escape watching a movie or what have you. And truly and firmly believe that movies and TikTok and everything have value, educational, artistic, inspirational, but... It's about intentionality. Like you have to be intentional with how you use these things. And right now we are not. Well, it's more like a compulsion a lot yeah. of the time. Yeah. So my second point was a summary of all your threes. Mine was disconnection with people and planet. And the approach I took to talking about these topics was a lack of mindfulness is the essence of my gripe <laughs> is that we can't be mindful. Like, as you said, when we're working nine to five, it's like, if you are mindful and like peacefully sweeping the floors and restocking shelves, um, paperwork, like ugh, these staples are really beautiful. Like it's just your day would feel like an eternity and I feel like you'd be more exhausted when you got home. Oh, you'd be done. Like there'd be no chance of me coming home being like, hey, let's have supper and go to a movie. Like it well, would be. I used to hold a hose and water plants for eight hours. A yeah. Day, or weed. Mm -hmm. And uh, challenging. Certainly. So <laughs> that just, I feel like that's, we can't be mindful in the system that we operate in. And I feel like that's what's wrong. Ideally, we'd be in a system where maybe we work 30 hours a week and it's in jobs that we are interested in. Like say you work in a garden center and you can really engage with the customers, like build repertoire. Maybe you want to learn about the plants, but when you're there 40 hours a week, it's just like, you don't want to expend that energy. Like it feels like you're going to get paid either way. I think, um... Those are good ideas. Yeah. I feel like they could be expanded on a little bit more. Maybe this could be our first question. Mm. What do systems <laughs> look like that encourage and promote mindfulness? Okay. I like that question because, yeah, I was going to try and start coming up with solutions. That's what I prefer doing when I'm like talking about grapes. Before capitalism, 
we weren't paid for our time for the most part. You were paid for what you produced. But now it's like, it literally doesn't matter. As long as you're at work for those hours, you're going to get paid. And like people know that makes people disconnected from like their physical environment. Well, it certainly ruins our relationship with work for one yeah. thing, which is um, has such a negative connotation today. But mm-hmm. it really is... Um, I sound so corporate when I say this, but it's in a lot of ways, I think the meaning of life is finding meaningful work mm-hmm. and doing it. I mean, like if we didn't work, I don't want to live a life where I don't have work. So if it was always summer, I wouldn't appreciate summer as much. Yeah, I never feel more alive than when I'm working on something I care about. Yeah. I think this can be central to the question about systems because you've been um, obviously putting a lot of it down to capitalism, but I think we can expand upon that a little bit more mm-hmm. and get, I think so. get into the weeds on that. Yeah, for sure. And I guess that's kind of a disconnection from ourselves, but then maybe we can move on to disconnection from other people. Yeah, so I have some some points about that. First is culture. Mm-hmm. I've kind of written it down as the flattening of culture, and this sounds a little bit oxymoronic because I think a lot of people also consider culture as being moving ridiculously fast today. Mm-hmm. Let me know if this image makes sense to you. I feel like when I'm in culture, i.e. when I'm on social media, mm-hmm. typically I'm not because it destroys my soul and my and my mind and my body. But <laughs> I feel like when you are in that, things are accelerating so fast that it looks like they're still. Mm. The picture I drew up was, imagine if you're sitting in a car that's going so fast, like way faster than any car you can imagine, mm-hmm. like Superman. Yeah. When he spins across the earth and it's going so fast that the blur out the window just looks like a still image. Does that make any sense? That does make sense. It's an interesting way of putting it and describing a feeling that I feel like people have, but just don't know what the feeling is. Yeah. Like you feel a peace, like a stillness when you're on social media. Stillness certainly, but I, I, rather than peace, I would call it an emptiness. Yeah. Despite how full we are. Yeah. We're watching, like you sit down on TikTok for 20 minutes. And you probably consume like 80 TikToks. Well, you think it's 20 minutes, but oftentimes it's really 20 hours. You've done that. Have I? You've, you've sat there for 20 hours. Oh, and wow. You'll kind of get off the phone and you'll be like, oh, okay, only 20 minutes has passed. And sometimes it's been a day and 20 minutes, but oh, you don't really? even notice. I didn't know that about myself. <laughs> That's an exaggeration, <laughs> but I, I, TikTok is such a dangerous technology that I feel like mm-hmm. um, everyone listening who has been on that app can relate. Mm-hmm. That's how quick time can go by. And I don't enjoy the videos. <laughs> I don't like them. Yeah. And I was saying the other day, oh, well, these are the ones that we like. These are the ones we don't like. Mm-hmm. And then I had to stop myself and say, it's not like you like some types of videos. Mm-hmm. It's more like you forget to swipe past them. Mm-hmm. That's what it's like. It's like the first few seconds of you so hooked that you've forgotten that mm-hmm. you actually don't like it. Yeah. Like sometimes you'll, you'll be watching like a video of one of those, those things that have obviously been really calculated to try and hook four-year-olds who have mm-hmm. phones yeah. and it'll be like a gummy bear being inflated yes and you'll be like oh what's gonna happen next mm-hmm. but then it's like why do you care about this and once yeah. you get off the phone you don't remember it exactly you were giving me an idea about like when i'm on tiktok i always feel inspired like i have a bunch of ideas like about what i'm gonna wear what i'm gonna cook what i'm gonna research look into read but then as soon as you get off you're like well what am i supposed to do first and, and then you kind of like go back on back up yeah it's it, i feel like um you're a cat with a light, one of those lights, mm-hmm. and you're like chasing it across the walls. Yeah. How does this disconnect us from other people, Aaron? Well, culture is the main method by which we interact with a society. Mm-hmm. And when culture is 
deadening. Mm-hmm. Our relationships are dead. Yes. I kind of uh, forgot to mention this when I was talking about mass media, but another example, not exactly social media, but kind of social media when it comes to influences and traditional media too. I would argue most people, I don't want to like project myself onto everybody, but me mm-hmm. certainly, and I think most people, and I think certainly most young people, we know of more people, like a lot more people than mm-hmm. we know. Or another way of saying it is that parasocial relationships dominate our time more mm-hmm. than more than real ones. Like I know more politicians, athletes, celebrities, actors, musicians, directors, than I have real relationships with people. And mm-hmm. this can look like Twitch streamers when mm-hmm. people subscribe to them or influences influences on social media. And I feel like there's a, there's a lot of snobbery towards people. Oh, that's a pathetic activity or whatever. Mm-hmm. But really, it's no different to following Hollywood. Mm-hmm. It's like you don't know Brad Pitt. Yeah. Why Why do we know his name? Yeah. Things like that. It's, it's and historically, you never knew that. Sometimes maybe mm-hmm. you know about Crazy Joe from the town over. Yeah. But you wouldn't know more <laughs> Crazy Joes than you know people in your own life. Mm-hmm. But now and we do, and I think by a big factor, we know more. Yeah, and the thing with those is like traditionally, if you needed advice, you'd go to your aunt. If you needed someone to help you with a construction project, you'd go to your cousin or your friend down the street. But now we go to YouTube for those things, for yeah, advice, for that's a good point. Um, lessons and how to do anything. And in a way, it's good because let's say you're starting to go to the gym. Yeah. And you type in exercises on YouTube. Oh, mm-hmm. here's a channel called Athlean X. There's a guy called Jeff Cavalier. <laughs> he, ne- he never wears a shirt, but mm-hmm. he's incredibly knowledgeable. And he, you know, with all due respect to your gym buddy, he probably knows more about it. Yes. So you're getting better advice, yeah. which, which is certainly a good thing. Maybe Brad Pitt wasn't a good example because he's famous for being skilled. Mm-hmm. But all the people who we know who aren't skilled, mm-hmm. but are just famous. Yeah. That's certainly not a good thing. But I also don't think the always deferring to Google, let's say, yes. to answer a question is the best idea, even if you get marginally better recipes mm-hmm. than just talking to your mom, mm-hmm. because you don't form any relationships like that. Yeah, and relationships just are the meaning of life. The lasagna is going to taste better if you made it together. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> There's probably so many other reasons why we're disconnected from people. Well, it's not, yeah, I have some more. Something other okay. about uh, culture is that there's no localized culture anymore. Mm, so we yeah. have no connection to a place. Yeah. And this can sound rather nationalist. I don't mean it from that point of view. What I mean is, I feel like in 50 years, there won't be so strong a connection to home sweet home. I mm-hmm. love that town. Yeah. Because the general trend is that all towns look the same. Yeah, they all have a McDonald's, a Tim Hortons. Exactly. A the, highway. The architectural looks the same. Yeah. And this can largely be put down to the internet. I've heard it said quite often that People who are raised on the internet aren't really citizens of their country. They're citizens Mm -hmm. of the internet, first Mm -hmm. and foremost. And I definitely feel that. And I don't think it's a good thing, despite me not really putting that much stock into patriotism Mm -hmm. or the flag or the anthem or anything like that. It's not about those things. It's about feeling a belonging, a sense of belonging. Yeah, and it just means you're not going to care about your neighbor. Or, oh, there's this really beautiful park down the street that's being threatened by a corporation. You're like, but I'd rather go to Yosemite. Or I'd rather look at pictures of that. It's like you just are always going to think that everything around you sucks. Yeah, well, of course, because, well, you don't appreciate it so much. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Something else about the disconnection from others is 
this distinct lack of trust that we feel. Mm -hmm. And you always hear parents complain about this. Oh, when I was a kid, I used to be allowed out on the streets. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, you're the ones who aren't allowing your kids out on the streets now. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I don't blame them because yeah. I feel like we know so much. We're exposed to so much constant bad news about mm -hmm. the crimes that people do, the, the dangers of living. Mm -hmm. And I don't think they've gotten higher. I don't think your kids are particularly under much more threat than they were in the 70s or 80s. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, helicopter parents, we, we feel that they are. Mm -hmm. And this is also a positive feedback loop because the less you trust, the, the less you trust. Mm -hmm. And this goes to your neighbor and also for governments. And this feeds into the contrarianism or conspiracy theories I was mentioning earlier. Mm -hmm. Certainly. And another manifestation of this is the complete control of permits and regulations and HR in businesses mm -hmm. and people just in general being put on very tight leashes yeah which makes you feel that you can't do anything we were mm -hmm. watching a movie the other day and it had a teacher who I think was a great teacher in the movie yeah but we remarked afterwards wow she wouldn't be allowed to have these conversations with our struggling students or mm -hmm. with her uh, rebellious students mm -hmm. today because it was a movie made in the 70s because well it would be deemed completely inappropriate mm -hmm. and you were saying that you knew some teachers who always griping that they're not allowed to hug their kids anymore mm -hmm. in the class yeah which and I think it's is like, sad and it, we know it's just it comes from an area of distrust it comes from us being exposed to stories of horrendous things happening to kids and teachers those relationships yeah, helicopter parents, I feel like it's a good word for it. It's just like, but as a society, it's like we're afraid to have relationships because like you don't really know how it's going to go. You know everyone could potentially be a backstabber or what have you. <laughs> Literally, yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that's worrying. I, I mentioned our treatment of kids, but also in our adult lives when it comes to mm -hmm. meeting people, I feel like we're, we're just so much more on guard than before. Mm-hmm. There also aren't really the places, like the physical spaces. I know it's COVID, but like even before that. To interact with people. We could just go. We just watched the French Dispatch. There's this cafe where all the French students gathered and were forming a revolution. And I was like, I would love to be in just a revolution cafe. Well, there's a, web, there's a, there's a website for that. There are okay. websites. That's but I want to go and have a chessboard, have my cappuccino, have the jukebox playing. And it'd be absolutely stuffed with kids debating, screaming at each other about <laughs> political systems that they're passionate about. Like, those are the spaces where I want to be because it's like the internet. Of course. It's exactly like the internet, but it's completely different because you're there. Like, you can, your senses are engaged and you're going to do stuff. But if you're in that exact same scenario on the internet, you're playing a game of chess with a guy and having a debate and it's a whole thing. You're watching a YouTube video at the same time. It's like not the same, you're, but you're by it. yourself, ultimately. Yeah. The problem is it's safer. And mm -hmm. I feel like there's such a pervading neurosis in our culture today that people often choose safety over everything else, mm -hmm. which is not good. And yeah. um, the final point about disconnection from others, just because just because I want to move on, is an economic point about the complete lack of artisans that are accessible to most people today, mm. meaning that one of the reasons you don't know your neighbor's name, we don't know our neighbor's name. No. I would go so far to say is we don't know the name of any person living in our apartment building. We don't. We don't <laughs> even know the landlord's name, to be honest, is because you no longer have to interact with them to buy rice. Mm -hmm. Like you don't know, oh, that's Maud. Mm -hmm. She grows rice. Mm -hmm. Now we just know Uncle Ben, which is kind of like a, <laughs> uh, 
it's funny, but it's a it's true. It's really a gross perversion of what used to be, mm-hmm. you know, genuine, familial, tribe-like relationships that we had. Mm-hmm. Now we have those with Uncle Ben and Aunt Jemima. I don't know if her name changed, but people like that. And yeah. uh, it's like this corporate grossness. Mm-hmm. I love Uncle Ben's rice, so that's the problem. You do? Yeah. But I'm sure in a lot of places there might still be a mod who grows the rice. Mm-hmm. But her rice is going to be so much more expensive because she is growing real rice and it takes real time. Mm-hmm. Whereas corporate rice can outsource the labor to where it's incredibly cheap mm-hmm. and really doesn't care if there's a tooth in the bag. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So to speak, tooth in the bag. Yep. <laughs> I mean, we talk about this, there's this irony where now it's like the local handmade, probably imperfect artisanal t-shirt mm-hmm. is so much more expensive than the manufactured, really bright, artificial one with all new technologies and plastics. That's kind of like a, a reversal of the historical norm. Yeah. Like healthy let's say organic or hand-woven clothes now are pretty much reserved for the rich, mm-hmm. which is wild. I feel like peasants used to, used to wear those and it would be like the exotic foreign materials, which uh, the upper class wore. Yeah, I feel like a good question for next week or a future week is talking about true cost. Like what is true cost? Yeah, let's, uh, let's have that for next week. Yeah, because that's like, that's like what that is. It's like, well, if we actually charged what it would cost to make that hot pink shirt, it'd be crazy of course but we don't because we don't factor in externalities so that's a good question for next week my final gripe <laughs> is the lie that growth equals well-being i touched on this earlier all my points are pretty linked together but we think that growth and well-being are the same like it's like the word degrowth is scary and makes you think we're regressing oh, we're regressing like i don't want to give up all my everything like I don't want to stop yeah but that's not what degrowth is and we think that growth means we are increasingly in a better state and like that's why we need to strive for growth and that's what capitalism is it's the lie of perpetual and eternal growth so well-being there's two types of well-being one is objective well-being you're safe you're food secure educated healthy and honestly growth to a certain point does in fact raise up objective well-being. I mean, of course. A lot of people who live in poverty, growth would benefit them if it was equitably distributed. It would help them have access to food, secure housing, yeah, that's, education. That's why you have to be that's why you have to be careful about constantly criticizing, let's say, North American society. Mm-hmm. It's like you know this is the healthiest humans mm-hmm. have ever been, right? Yeah. In, in, Most in educated. Yeah. Yes. I mean, we have plumbing. Yeah, pretty crazy. Access to clean water, some of us. (laughs) That's a good example. We'll use the clean water example. It's like objective well-being. It should increase with growth, and it does for for the most part. But because it's still concentrated, it's kind of an oligarchy, the way that wealth is distributed and the way our society is run is like concentrated into the hands of a few it still like really focuses on the majority. Like there are people living in North America without clean water, like whole communities of indigenous people. So it's like growth could equal objective well-being, but it needs to be done equitably and dem- democratically. Yeah, it's like we move too fast that we leave these cracks for people to fall through. Yeah. Kind of like that. Yeah. 
And the second type of well-being is subjective well-being, which in my opinion, past a certain point, like it's a bell curve, it just drops off a cliff, like subjective well-being, which is how people feel about their life, satisfaction, emotions, and meaningfulness. I feel like if you asked anyone in North America, do you feel like, like your life is meaningful? I feel like a high percentage of people would say no. Do you agree with that? Yeah, this is, uh, this is about alienation. I mean, you, yeah. it's statistically, just look at mental health. Yes. I feel like there's a lot more mental health issues here than there are in some developing countries, which yeah. doesn't really make sense because, mm -hmm. of course, we're so much more healthy mm -hmm. and privileged here. Mm -hmm. And yet there's an alienation, which yes. comes with the disconnects. There's also the fact that everything is in comparison to everyone else's there's this quote that I wanted to read, and it says, Above a certain level, growth does not increase happiness. This is because once basic material needs are satisfied, extra incomes are devoted increasingly to positional goods, for example, a house bigger than the neighbors. Relative and not absolute wealth determines access to positional goods. Everyone wants growth in order to raise his or her position, but as everyone rises together, no one gets better. Therefore, growth does not equal increase in well-being is well, how I would phrase it. Yeah, let's it. say material growth, economic yes. growth. Certainly, you can, you can grow in some, area, in some areas where it is infinite. Mm -hmm. You can never be as healthy as you can be yeah. or as smart as you can be. Mm -hmm. That kind of growth is good. Yeah. That's maybe another example about uh, another way to define degrowth is defining what the kind of growth that we are deing from. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We mean blind economic growth above all else. Yeah, basically consumption of resources. Mm -hmm. I was trying to write an essay the other day and a chunk of it that I cut out was basically saying, hey, do you know what we could be investing in? Research in medicine, research in how to best allocate food to people. And like, there's no limit to that. Like, it's just logic. It's in our brains. Like, as long as we have our basic needs met, like we can do those things. Mm -hmm. It's the hierarchy of needs. And it's definitely not the growth that we're trying to regress from. It's we're trying to stop this kind of mindless growth for the sake of growth's sake. Which distracts us indeed from those other more noble yeah. pursuits. Yeah. Because capitalism, I am going to keep griping about it, but honestly, degrowth and capitalism could be completely compatible. Yeah, I think when you're mentioning capitalism, we're talking about this specific time of economics we're in right now, which I think mm -hmm. can be defined as late stage capitalism, mm -hmm. where it's like the end of the monopoly game. Yes. And it's not fun anymore. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Things are fun. But at the start of monopoly, when yeah. you're rolling the dice. It's still kind of fun. It's still kind of fun. Yeah. You get your so, little chance cards, community chests. Right? Yeah. So like it can be fun. <laughs> and it's like degrowth could happen under capitalism, but not the way we're doing it. Not the way it's been done because it makes you think you're worthless. And therefore, you'll sell your time for cheaper so that the price of goods can artificially go down before capitalism. I'm going to keep referring to this, but like, I think as we said next week, thinking about the positive systems, it'll be more useful. But like before capitalism, it was like the people who were creating their goods, they would put a ton of time into it. And like, like people couldn't sell their goods below a certain price because then it's like, if you sell your good for under that price, I'm not going to be able to match it. So my family is going to not be able to eat. So there are guilds of people making things like the shoemakers of the community or of the country would work together and say, we're not going to sell our shoes below $20. Mm -hmm. 
Right. You can it's sell a, it above, but not below. It was more of a community rather than a competition. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's just an interesting way of thinking about it because then no one was going hungry, like in the shoemaker guild. But now it's like there could be 10 different clothing brands and nine of them are failing, struggling to make ends meet because the one is undercutting and like tricking people into working for low wages, exporting their labor or their resources are super sketchily sourced so that they can make more money. Do you mind if I interrupt you with something rather frivolous? Please do. But not really frivolous. That all matters. What you just said was very important. We should address that in a moment. But okay. I wanted to take a moment of your time to talk about the scaly foot snail. <laughs> if, um, if the listeners are an experienced podcast consumer, you might know that at some point often you take a moment to talk about the sponsors of the show. Okay. So for Solar Scene, we're doing things a bit differently. And each episode, we're going to have an organism of the week. That's what this section's called. So instead of being sponsored by Squarespace, this week, as I mentioned, we're being sponsored by the scaly foot snail, or um, scientifically termed as the chrysomelum squamiferum, or nicknamed the sea pangolin. Okay. And I thought this was very relevant. You know, I just chose this organism because the snail is actually the emblem of degrowth. Yes. It's kind of like the logo. Mm -hmm. And I like it because... As you said earlier, oh, people hear about degrowth. Why would we want to regress? Mm -hmm. What the snail tells you is that you're not regressing. You're still mm -hmm. moving forward. You might be doing it slower, but you're doing it in the right direction. Mm -hmm. And you have a cool, a cool shell. Yeah. And I learned today that there's a word for the spirals on the shell. Okay. Like each, each little rotation is called a wall. Mm -hmm. W-H-O-R-L. Yeah. Say it. Wall. Yeah, I don't know how to pronounce it. So some facts about the scaly foot snail. It is an underwater snail, a sea snail. Okay. Lives on the sea floor Scary. in this very specific region of the Indian Ocean. Okay. Basically in and around hydrothermal vents. Okay. So cool. it's, it's very endemic to this one area in the mm -hmm. Indian Ocean. And it was listed endangered in 2019 mm. because of deep sea mining for, I guess, these, these places are very precious in manganese and copper and minerals like that as you can imagine because they're pushing waters up from the earth's core and the earth's mantle yeah i'm going to show you a picture because the podcast is so auditory i thought it would just be fun if for each of these sections the person who didn't know about the organism of the week i've sprung this on you i can you tell did, yeah. <laughs> has to describe it to the audience okay another reason why the snail is the symbol of degrowth is because basically they add a spiral like as they age Give me a second. I don't have to look at that yet. And then because they're increasingly exponentially heavy, there becomes a point where if they add another spiral, they won't be able to move. Oh, that's really And fun. so it's like, you need growth, mm -hmm. but then there's a point where it's not good anymore. That's a good tip. Okay, let me see this boy. Or... Or girl, they're actually hermaphrodites. <laughs> let me see them. Okay. <laughs> so it has a black shell that looks like a muscle shell, like a... A muscle, yes. A muscle, yeah. But then coming out of it, it also kind of looks like a muscle, like a little, like a tongue. Does it remind you of any comic book Marvel characters, perhaps related to Spider-Man, perhaps... Uh, it does um, look like Venom, doesn't it? Yeah, it does it? look like Venom a lot. Yeah, or the, the alien. It has a little black skirt. Okay. I like that. Its shell isn't super round. It's like a half circle, like it's a it's a crescent. And it's pink and black. I didn't think, I didn't expect this guy to be... It has a tongue. Black. It has a tongue. Are no, those feelers? Yeah, those are feelers. They're feelers. I like them. I really like snail shells. 
I really wanted it to be our logo, but then we opted out of a logo. Too corporate. Yeah. <laughs> um, the reason I picked this scaly foot snail, one of the reasons is that it was only discovered in 2001. Oh, okay. So it only took 18 years between discovery for it to be endangered, mm. which makes me think, I wonder how many species we haven't yet discovered, which are either very endangered or have just gone ex extinct without ever being seen, mm. which is very scary because the delicate nature of this habitat, I mean, you can just imagine they don't know anything about these snails. Mm -hmm. The people who are deep sea mining, mm -hmm. as in I'm imagining it just trolling, yeah, don't care, no. I say. And you would think, well, these guys might be safe. They live in this one very small area at the bottom of the Indian Ocean, which is 2,400 meters deep. Mm -hmm. And their little patch is 900 kilometers from any land. Yeah. They, they're not safe. No one's safe. <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's an issue. Yeah. So shout out the scaly foot snail. Shout out the sea pangolin. And slightly related, I found a really good article about our relationship to the deep ocean. And it's mm -hmm. called, Unless We Regain Our Historic Awe of the Deep Ocean, It Will Be Plundered. And that's yeah. an article on theconversation.com. Recommend that to people to check it out because it was a really eye-opening and, uh, and thought-provoking article for me. Honestly, I knew deep sea mining was a thing. Like, I'd heard it. But until now, I never put the thought in my head of, like, this is invasive. Like, this is... The rough stuff. Yeah. Like, this feels like you're basically perverting something that should be sacred and, like... Yeah, the deep sea, I feel like I have that awe of like, there's giant squid down there. Well, we're the, we're the generation of Finding Nemo. Yeah. Like when that guy comes in and reaches his hand down. <sighs> Makes you want to throw some punches. Yeah. Yeah. And but they're like, Nemo, awesome. don't touch the boat. Or what does he touch? Don't touch the butt. But then it was, yeah. it was the boat, I think. It's not good. It's, that's scary to me. That's a, something I'm probably going to look into now. And try and figure out how to help because we shouldn't be mining the bottom of the ocean, I don't think. Good. I've, I've changed the life. I think it can probably be done, but just got to care about the snails. There's a low chance that it's being done sustainably. Can I move on to my final point? Yes, which you can. Which is our disconnect from the environment. I have three sub points for this. The first is that we rarely interact with it. Mm -hmm. When I talk about environment, I don't just mean nature. I mean the world around us. Yes. Which includes nature. So, yes. So one of the big points of this is our literal physical distance from nature. Yeah. We live in Montreal. We just moved here two months ago. And I was like, sweet, a city, culture. It's going to be so nice. I already missed the ocean where we used yeah. to live, though. I missed the... I do as well. I mean, it's fall. And last fall, we went apple picking. Yeah. And we went to a corn maze. And we went to, like, harvesting food. And you, you do feel uh, an emptiness not being around that. And I don't mm -hmm. think it's a home sweet home nature. It makes me sad because so many people are born and raised and never leave metropolises with even less nature than... Montreal. Yeah, we're pretty fortunate. They have a big park. Yeah, and they don't even have ne never seen the ocean. That's sad to me, or or never been in a forest. Mm -hmm. That's um, I feel like that's bad for us. Mm -hmm. Another example about us really interacting with the environment is the lack of touch, smell, and uh, general tactility with which we traverse the world today. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite like little memes online is this. It's kind of like a side-by-side -side comparisons mm -hmm. and on the left it's how things used to be on the right is today so on the left it was like um it's listing all these different activities making music listening to music painting watching a movie and it would be a person holding a guitar 
at a concert with an easel or at a cinema and mm -hmm. on the right it was all the same things but it was just the exact same picture of a guy with a laptop with headphones mm -hmm. in each time and looking obviously kind of not happy yeah and i think technology today is is ridiculous mm -hmm. it's great i mean we're right now broadcasting our voices to however many tens of people might be listening yeah but there's also kind of a again an alienation or a distance with it they don't mm -hmm. know us yeah they might have headphones in it's like a buffer of feeling mm -hmm. it's, it's hard to feel things even you mentioned the seasons sometimes seasons pass and you don't really notice that much mm -hmm. because you don't have to go out and do stuff you know, our apartments are just air-conditioned or heated and they, they stay the same. Mm -hmm. Which is nice and good, but there's no... Yeah, you don't have to harvest wood. You don't have to yeah. open all the windows in the summer and have your ice pack out. Like, yeah. Touch screens. Touch screens are rough. Like, that's what... Mm -hmm. That's why I like paper. Yes. Okay. Um, <laughs> another point about the environment is that it's ugly, really ugly. And I'm not talking about nature. I'm talking about our built environment. There's so little care into the aesthetics of it. Mm -hmm. And this means ugly buildings. Mm. This means cars, which I despise because they just despoil all the landscape. Stink chariots. Stink chariots is yes. our nickname for cars. This means, wow, what a beautiful landscape. And you see the, maybe there is a, a nice patch of town or forest or maybe mountains in the background or a nice sunrise. Mm -hmm. Except for all those telephone wires. Mm -hmm. stretching across the horizon which we kind of just ignore now it's like we yeah. our eyes just kind of brush over that but mm -hmm. they're not nice and this ugliness again it seems like a, a superficial concern but i think it matters a lot because it we care less about things we take less pride in our town our community and we want to be around it less in general it makes yeah. me say oh i don't like these streets yeah, it might not even be conscious. It's just subconsciously, well, like, I don't really care if, if there's pollution because, like, it's not going to make anything worse. Yeah, how can things get worse? Yeah, things yeah. are ugly here. One thing I wanted to mention is that this isn't just sights. This is sounds, too. Mm -hmm. We were out and about the other day, and there was a church bell ringing. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wow, I love the sound of that. Yeah. And I feel like historically, towns kind of all listen to the same things like that mm -hmm. like the bell ringing or maybe there'd be a concert in the park in the middle mm -hmm. and I like that idea of communal sounds that are designed to sound nice yeah because now I feel like the most communal sound obviously not everyone's listening to the same one but everyone has one is our morning alarm typically mm -hmm. on our phone which is a an awful sound mm -hmm. but that's how we are being born into the world every day yeah and that kind of sets the tone in a bad way. You mentioned the French dispatch. Mm -hmm. I had to mention that as well because I'm just happy after having watched it. It's a really yeah. beautiful movie. And it's just very stylish. And I feel like it's this, it's like this homage to the idea of the old world mm -hmm. when things used to be designed with a bit more purpose. Again, this is economic because they were designed by people who cared about it. Mm -hmm. It was artisanal. I mean, just look at the buildings that we're in. Yeah. There's kind of a soulless nature to it. Or you'll be walking around a really nice downtown, either in the city that you live in, or perhaps you're lucky enough to go on vacation. And it's like there's this, this line drawn. Well, these mm -hmm. are the beautiful buildings. Yes. They're the old ones. And these are the ugly ones. Mm -hmm. They're the new ones because they're just glass prints. Mm -hmm. What's with that? Where are the frescoes? Where's the romance? Yeah, I mean, you even think about old like 
water fountains that people would drink from. They were beautiful. And then it's just like, we're very utilitarian. There's a lot more, but we just need to get these things up so people have places to live. Yeah. But even those, what are those streets in London that are like the rich, rich district downtown? Mm-hmm. Those were originally built by a benefactor, this woman. She built all those as accessible housing. Wow. But then they were bought by landlords who then marked them up insanely high yeah. and then now they're the richest like most expensive houses in london but still built with beauty in mind yeah and she was doing it in a utilitarian way she was like well she wanted them to be nice instead mm. of like the traditional this like block housing but still it was like she thought people deserve to live in nice houses and have beauty around them because it inspires you like i'm not overly inspired by our white walls well it's let's talk about the corners mm-hmm. so square very square. And nothing about the human body is square mm-hmm. or the way we move is square. Why, you know, why do we, we live in boxes and mm-hmm. we work in boxes in an office and we drive around in boxes. Mm-hmm. And this is not me saying that everything needs to be spacious, mm-hmm. although I think we could use space, space in a better way. It's about creativity and it's about not pricing people out of authenticity and beauty because when you confine everyone who isn't really rich to soulless boxes Mm -hmm. that makes you feel bad about yourself Mm -hmm. and this is part of the the feedback cycle that we see and this is uh this is why things don't change very much or one of the reasons i think i really think that something else i wanted to mention is this idea of appreciation which is really the other side of the coin to beauty Mm -hmm. we don't appreciate nice things when we do see them i I feel Mm -hmm. it's it's hard to do that and you mentioned it earlier about why would i care about the local garden when i know that there's Versailles, mm-hmm. because we're you know we might have that on our mood board, or yes. we might have that on our Pinterest. When we do see a beautiful building, a nice dog, mm-hmm. a nice view, soak it in. And the last point I had about our disconnection from the environment is this idea that I feel has pervaded our general narrative that humans are naturally and fundamentally destructive, mm. and that we are therefore one hundred percent separate from nature. And I think this can, again, be chalked down to education when the most successful people who we know of are generally really bad for the environment. Mm -hmm. So there's this idea that a successful human is incompatible with environmental sustainability. Mm -hmm. And also we have a a real lack of exposure to cultures which have been more sustainable than ours. Mm -hmm. So there's this idea that there aren't any. Yeah. And that our culture is the only one, mm-hmm. which is certainly not a good thing because our culture is not very sustainable for the environment. Yeah. Breading sweetgrass, the author of it, she just kept saying, she was like, you are not intrinsically anti-nature. You are literally a part of nature. Like mm-hmm. You are an organism. You rely on nature and nature relies on you. So like stop telling yourself that you can't do anything, that you are only destructive because that's just a lie. And it was an intentional lie, basically fed to us and created to stop people from trying to help. And that was a book about like indigenous knowledge, right? Yeah. Or indigenous ways of doing things. I feel mm-hmm. like this also explains the, I don't know if there's another word for it, rather than anti-human or anti-natalism narrative that we see today, where especially young people almost kind of gleefully saying, I won't have kids, you shouldn't have kids. That's the best thing you can do for the environment. Because bringing more humans in is, of course, humans have footprints and that's bad. But that ignores the possibility for humans to have 
a positive impact on the environment, yeah. which I think is is a possibility, even though yeah. it might not be a probability, depending on what system they're born into. You know, you mm -hmm. can raise your kid however you want to raise your kid. Yeah. We have another question for this episode. Yeah, I think that about covers what's wrong. Mm -hmm. Kind of the, the B side to that, which we're not going to talk about so much because we've already chewed on a lot, mm -hmm. is how bad can it get? Yes. Or what's the worst case scenario? Mm -hmm. So the Council of Climate People, like they work together to create different representative concentration pathways. So they set a computer off on its way to create a bunch of different scenarios, giving the computer information about different concentrations of greenhouse gases and increases in global temperatures. So the best case scenario that it came out with was the 2.8 scenario. And it was, okay, the climate will, this is best case scenario. <laughs> increase, so you're talking environmental worst case? Yes. Okay. 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels with steep emission declines. That was like the climatic situation. But RPC 8.5, the worst case scenario, is that the global temperatures increase four degrees above pre-industrial levels. There's increasing emissions. And then there's a bunch of the social impacts. Of course, which is war. Yes. Mass migration. Yeah, millions of hundreds of millions of people forced to migrate. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't usually put too much stock into climate projections because I feel like it doesn't do me much good. And they they generally give a lot of ammunition to climate deniers and people who want to discredit science in general mm -hmm. because they're invariably not going to be correct because yeah. there's, there's so many variables involved. Mm -hmm. But for a worst case, I like to just say, you know, let your imagination run away with it. Like mm -hmm. you kind of just did that. You gave some basic ground rules. Yeah. But in general, it's like, you know, just, just think about it. Maybe the permafrost will melt. Maybe mm -hmm. there'll be oceans rising. Maybe a lot of people will run out of water. Maybe there'll be mm -hmm. a lot of resulting war. Maybe there'll be a lot of mass migration of peoples and perhaps of animals and trees. Mm -hmm. Maybe the oceans will become way too acidic for a lot mm -hmm. of things to live. Yeah, the specifics on the worst case scenario is that one in six species will be extinct by 2100. That like has never happened. Like it's not like one in six species don't just go extinct in 50 years or I guess 75 years. There's so much bad stuff that could happen within our lifetimes potentially. Certainly. And you're just talking about emissions. Yeah. You're not talking about waste. Mental health. Yeah. So my my kind of response to this question of how bad can it get was asking another question which is <laughs> sounds kind of funny what happens when the generation raised on memes is in charge yeah <laughs> um and that's of course our generation mm -hmm. i don't trust us you don't trust us no there's and i'm not even talking about our generation i can consider myself incredibly lucky that i wasn't raised on the internet mm -hmm. i was quote unquote, raised on the internet by the time I turned like 12, 13. I spent mm -hmm. a lot of time on it, but I wasn't born into it. So mm -hmm. I had my formative years were normal, mm -hmm. which I think is is going to become quite a cherished thing. Yeah, I think so. I have a lot of faith in our generation. However, I also have a lot of faith in the staying power of the older generations because people are just like in politics till they're in their 80s. Yes. So it's like you're going to have people who don't believe in climate change in positions of power for many years. There's a lot of young people who don't believe in climate change as well. 
I don't like uh, to believe it, but I guess it's true. Yeah, there's, there's, it's, it's easy to be like, I mean, I said it earlier, well, our generation's really engaged. Mm-hmm. We see a lot of the people who are. Yeah. There's a lot of people who aren't. And also the people who are engaged, that's not necessarily a, always a really good thing. Mm-hmm. So the other question I asked in response to this question is, what will be the outcome of the long, arduous period of global climate crisis? And we mm-hmm. kind of already said, to define global climate crisis, just let your mind run wild with it. Yeah. Thinking worst case, so be imaginative, be creative about it. Mm-hmm. And what I think will happen, worst case scenario, mm-hmm. is that humans who survive, generally rich humans, yes. will be like, oh man, we should reduce our emissions. Of course, it'll be much too late, but they'll, yeah. they'll, they'll say that and they'll do that. Mm-hmm. And there'll be a kind of forced degrowth. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite cartoons is called Future Boy Conan. It's made by Hayao Miyazaki before he joined Studio Ghibli. Mm-hmm. And it's a post-apocalyptic story about a boy after some big war between a land, which I think is literally called Industria. Mm-hmm. Um, the world kind of floods and mm-hmm. it becomes beautiful again. And he's on an island which is uh, very degrown with just mm-hmm. him and an old guy. And that's how I imagine it, which yeah. is not an optimistic thing. I'm not painting that in a good light, but I feel like degrowth is of some sort is um, essentially inevitable. Yes. The question is, how do we want to do it? Mm-hmm. How many casualties should there be along the way? Kind of. Yeah, thing? I think that's a good transition into next week's episode where we'll be much more optimistic that's the thing. It's like if you live in a community where everyone's forced to ride bikes because no one can afford cars and it's not an option, like you have to ride a bike, yes. you're going to feel like garbage doing it. But if you work together and say, hey guys, biking's cool. Like you're going to save the planet. You're going to get fit. You're going to see more of the city, smell more of the city. And also, Let's all ride bikes. And also this city is built in a way which you can ride a bike. Yeah. You're not risking your life every time you mm-hmm. uh, put on the helmet. Um, that's just a little example of like the choice between degrowth and forced degrowth. We need to shift that mindset from, well, degrowth means giving up a bunch of stuff to being more towards degrowth is such a cool opportunity to like make the choices that we want to make. I think that was a good introduction to degrowth. Hopefully some of our personalities came across a little bit so people know what, who they're listening to. Yes, what direction we're going to go in. And it's, I, I swear, it's going to be a bit, it's uphill from here. <laughs> Don't be so negative about what we just recorded. I like that conversation. Okay, thanks for listening, everybody. If you want to contact us, you can email Alicia and I. Those are in the description. Mm-hmm. It's Aaron at solacene.org and Alicia at solacene.org. If you want to check out some more content, I hate that word, but some more mini movies that we make. Mm-hmm. We are on TikTok, regrettably, at Solacene. Yes. And if you want to buy our zine, <gasps> you can find that at www.solacene.org. Yeah, and it's about degrowth, so pretty cool. Thanks for listening. <laughs>